If you have your Bible, would you open with me to John chapter 16? We're going to begin in John 16, and then we'll move to John 14 afterwards. John 16, starting in verse 7. Oh, no, sorry, John 14, starting in verse 16 through 18. John 14, 16 through 18. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Flip over to John chapter 16, starting in verse 7. John 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I did not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice at the fact that you have not left us alone, but that eternally proceeding from you is the Holy Spirit that you and your Son have sent on our behalf so that we might have help. <laughs> what a glorious truth. And so this morning, as we dive into the truths of your word, as we dive into the truths about who you are, give us clarity, give us conviction, and give us comfort. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths that are found in it. Lord, I know that without you, the words that I speak will go no further than the parking lot. And so this morning, I pray that you would instill the truths of your word into the hearts of your people. It's in your name we pray. Amen. That was awesome. She just amened for me at the end of my prayer. You guys need to catch on to that energy a little bit. Yeah. Well, this morning we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit. <laughs> the Holy Spirit. Uh, one of the things that, that we are convicted of here at Jesus Chapel is that it is ridiculously important for us to know what we believe. 
And so this morning as we come into this continued series of We Believe, we come off of an awesome week. Pastor Ricky Alcantar from Cross of Grace preached just an excellent sermon on what the church is last week. But this week, what we're going to move forward into is our understanding of who the Holy Spirit is. Now, I know for many of us that comes with a lot of baggage. Maybe you heard the Holy Spirit and you got weirdly excited. Or maybe the, you heard about the Holy Spirit and you got weirdly nervous. Both of them understandable responses in our day and age. You see, many of us have this kind of view of the Holy Spirit that he's kind of like the spooky Casper the Friendly Ghost type of character who shows up every once in a while and you're not sure if he's a real boy or not. And then you have uh, others that are like, man, you know, the Holy Spirit is just kind of an impersonal force who makes me feel really good. And sometimes when people pray for me, it gets really hot in the room. And it's not just because it's El Paso in the summer. Or maybe you, you kind of uh, look at the Holy Spirit as something that makes you feel warm and cuddly inside. Makes you feel good about yourself. Or maybe the, the Holy Spirit, like in charismatic circles like ours, we, we just put a huge emphasis on the Holy Spirit and the sign gifts. And you uh, uh, relate the Holy Spirit to just kind of uh, a lack of order, maybe a little bit of chaos. And you're really wondering, like, man, how do we engage in that in a way that's healthy? Or maybe um, you just relate to the Holy Spirit as an experience as something you've felt in the past, but not actually the person that is the third member of the Trinity. And so the Holy Spirit to you is really just an experience. It's not really a person. Here's what's so crazy about the, the concept of the Holy Spirit, and here's why we absolutely need this sermon today. Um, in August of last year, the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University did a poll. And they studied uh, Christians in America. And they, they just were, they were going after a bunch of stuff, trying to figure out uh, how many people in America were Christians and how many of those Christians would call themselves dedicated believers and how many of those dedicated believers actually were involved in the life of their church, how many of those dedicated believers actually understood some of the basics of our faith. And so they were asking those types of questions. And here is something shocking that they found. they found that roughly 60% of Christians believe that the Holy Spirit isn't real. <laughs> that it's just a symbol of God's presence, power, or purity. 60% of Christians. That is outrageous. Now, if you're in here this morning and you're like, man, this is the first time I've ever heard about the Holy Spirit, this is not to bring you shame, but it is to invite you into something this morning. When we miss out on the Holy Spirit, we miss out on a key aspect of who God is and what we're invited into as Christians. And what we're invited into as Christians. So here's my goal today. My goal today is to introduce us to the person of the Holy Spirit to help us understand why he is so important for our beliefs. And then I want to invite us to see why that matters in the way we relate to one another in the church. So let's, let's get into the story. When I was uh, in middle school, I, my parents had this great idea. They're like, Austin's tall. We need something for him to do. Let's put him in swim team. And so I got put in swim team, and, and I was part of the Los Lunas Tigers swim team. 
Uh, yeah, I knew I had some fans in the room. Um, so early on in, in my swimming career, I, I had to learn how to breathe. What I mean by that is I knew how to breathe outside of water, but if you didn't realize this, I'm not a fish. And so I had no idea how to, believe, how to breathe inside of the water. And so what would happen is I would swim a few laps in practice, or we'd get to a race, and I'd swim a few laps, and then I'd get to the edge of the pool when the race had finished, and I would get out of the water, and I would go, <gasps> <sighs> and then that would continue for a few minutes as I caught my breath and I, I got used to being outside of the water, being in oxygen again. As I breathed in and I breathed out, there was something that was happening. Life was being brought into my lungs. I was breathing. I was being revitalized. I was, I was coming to life. That that thing that's happening right there as I deeply breathe and, and life is being brought into me is the way that the scripture describes what the Holy Spirit is doing. You see, the, the word for the Holy Spirit literally means that. It's <gasps> divine breath. Divine breath. Divine life being given into our lungs. One of the songs I love that we sing here, and I didn't think about it until a few minutes ago to ask for us to have it played this morning, was it's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. You see, those words in that chorus were written almost 1,600 years ago by Augustine as he is thinking about the Holy Spirit and he is thinking about God and his work in the world. He describes it as the breath within our lungs that leads to praise. The, the Holy Spirit, what he is doing is he is the life-giving peace of the Trinity. As, as we breathe, that's describing the, the work of the Spirit in the Godhead. In the beginning, we, we see that, that, that God is there and that his Spirit, that is hovering over the waters. It's hovering over creation. And as God begins to speak, the Spirit begins to bring life, order, and beauty to creation. And things are formed, and trees, and clouds, and fish, and humanity is breathed into the life of God. The Holy Spirit brings life, and it brings order, and it brings beauty. And then there's this theme throughout Genesis 1 through 3 that throughout all of creation, God's presence existed, that God is with humanity, that God is there. We move on in the story, and, and we don't have time to get into it all, but later on we see after the fall of humanity that God's presence is removed from humanity. We see in Genesis 37 that God's presence shows up again. In Genesis 37 through 50, we see a story of a man by the name of Joseph who by the Spirit of God, by the presence of God dwelling with him, speaks words of knowledge and interprets dreams and is able to have a supernatural understanding because of the work of God in him through the Holy Spirit. 
The story carries on. We're excited. We've seen the Spirit of God come again. And then we see the exodus where the people of God are, are led out of slavery. And what are they led by? But the presence of God. It's what they're following. It's God's presence, God's Spirit leading them. And not only is God's Spirit leading them, but as they begin to settle in, the tabernacle is part of the people of Egypt. And where is it? It's the place where God's presence dwells, where God is now with his people. It's symbolic of God's Spirit being among the people of God. And then they continue on, and we see that, that the Spirit uh, indwells uh, Oholiab and Bezalel, and they're able to create beautiful things with their hands in order to uplift the glory of God through the tabernacle and the temple. And the temple is the full culmination in the Old Testament of God's presence dwelling in one place with His people. God is coming back. God with us is beginning to happen. The promise of Genesis 1 through 3 that God would be with His people. People. And when the fall happens, God promises again, I'm going to be with my people. And in the temple, we begin to see that, that God's presence is there. His spirit is there. He dwells with his people. But it's not complete. It's not the full realization of that. And in fact, what we'll see as we spend time with the Old Testament text is that as the people of God depart from God, the temple no longer becomes a place of God's presence. In fact, in Ezekiel, there's a vision that God's presence has left the building. God has left this people. And the prophets in the Old Testament are inspired by the Spirit to speak God's truth to the people of God. You see, what had happened is while God's presence had indwelled certain individuals at certain times, it was not yet for all of God's people. It was a part of God's people. It was part of their identity that he dwelled in the temple, but he did not dwell with all of them. And then there's a promise. There's a promise found in the book of Joel that one day, one day, the Spirit of God would live and dwell on all flesh. There's a promise of the Holy Spirit coming and dwelling on all flesh. And then Jesus shows up in the New Testament. And, and in Matthew chapter 4, we see Jesus' baptism happening. And what happens in his baptism? He's baptized, and then the heavens open, and a spirit descending like a dove comes and rests upon him. And after resting upon him, Jesus then steps out into his ministry. Jesus is filled with the Spirit. He's, he's empowered for ministry. And then we would think to ourselves, all right, now's the moment. Now is the time when, when everything is going to change. And yet Jesus is then led to the cross and he is murdered, crucified for the sins of his people. And in the grave, the language that the biblical authors use is that God's Spirit raises him from the dead. That God's Spirit comes in and raises him from the dead, bringing about new creation. New creation dawns in the life, order and beauty brought about by the power of the Spirit in Christ's resurrection. And so now we have something new happening. 
We have something new happening. We have the Spirit not only bringing about life, order, and beauty, but we have Jesus promising that the Spirit will come and will actually dwell within the people of God. Not in a building, not in a temple, not in a tabernacle, not among a select few, but in all the people of God. The Spirit will dwell. There's a, a promise that the Spirit will come. We see at the end of Luke and at the beginning of Acts, Jesus tells the disciples, he says, wait for power from the Holy Spirit before you go out to be my witnesses. He tells them to wait. Why does Jesus tell them to wait? Because it's the Spirit that will bring life and order and beauty to the church that's been born. They will now be a people with God's presence. They will hold fast to the presence of God through the Holy Spirit that dwells with them. The person of the Holy Spirit is not just a symbol of God's presence. He is God's presence. He is. And there's a promise that one day that presence will be fully seen and realized in the new heavens and the new earth, when Christ returns all flesh, all flesh will dwell with the presence of the Lord forever. The Spirit throughout the Old Testament into the new is actively working to make God's presence known to God's people by bringing about life, order, and beauty in the people of God. And so we come to our text this morning. We'll start in John chapter 16 and then we'll move to John chapter 14 because if that is the work of the Spirit, if the work of the Spirit within the people of God is for the purpose of helping us to understand God's presence, is helping us to exalt Christ, then what is it that he does amongst us? That's great, Austin, that he brings God's presence. What does that look like? What does that mean? How does that play out in the life of our church? And why does it matter? Well, if we look at our text in John chapter 16, starting in verse 7, there's going to be a very important thing that we see. That Jesus sends the Spirit to be a helper. This is so shocking to us. We read this verse, and I, I think we, we misunderstand some things that are happening here. If if I were to tell you, if I were to tell you that it would be better for Jesus not to be standing in front of you right now for your Christian faith, but instead for him to be at the right hand of the Father and the Spirit be with you, that would be so hard for many of us to believe. Right? Like, don't you kind of wish sometimes that you tangibly, like, had Jesus? Don't you wish that Jesus was preaching these sermons instead of me? Wouldn't that be so much easier? That would be easier for me. I would, have a, <laughs> I, would, I would much rather have that. But, but Jesus doesn't say, ah, it would be better for you if everyone just saw me face to face. In fact, Jesus says it would be better for you that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the Spirit won't come. Now that's fascinating. 
That's fascinating because that means that you and I have something, we have access to something right now that would be better for our Christian faith, would be better for our Christian walk than if Jesus was physically present in the building with us. That is ridiculous to think through. So Jesus says, I need to go away because you need the helper. And if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I do go, I will send him to you. The helper will come. He is a helper. And that language is so rich that Jesus is using. The concept of helper throughout the entire Old Testament is the word easer. It's this militant help to rescue the people of God. And so what Jesus is saying is if I go away, I will send Send you someone who will come and help you. Someone who will deliver, someone who will work within you to defeat the power of sin. That is shocking language. He is the helper. He will help us. Now what will he help us do? Will he just help us lower gas prices? Will he help us to be able to uh, get in better shape? Like what is this referring to? What is the specific help that Jesus is talking about here? Well, the first is that he will convict the world concerning sin. He will convict the world concerning righteousness. And he will convict the world concerning judgment. Let's follow along with the text with you, with me, if you will. Verse 9, he says, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. You see, the, the purpose of the Holy Spirit, what he helps in the world, is to convict of sin where it exists. To, to remind us of where sin is present and, and the way in which the world is walking in sin. He will convict the world of sin and then he will convict the world of righteousness. Look at verse 10 for me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Now this text makes zero sense to us if we don't spend some time with it. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. If Jesus is the righteousness of God revealed, then if Jesus is no longer present on the earth, how will the people of God and how will the people of the world know what righteousness looks like? Only if the Holy Spirit comes and reveals it to them. Only if the Holy Spirit comes and guides them into righteousness. Only if the Holy Spirit comes and through the empowering and the enabling and the embodiment of the church actually walks that righteousness out in practical ways within our day and age. You see, the, the Holy Spirit helps the world to understand God's righteousness in a way that we could only see if Jesus was here. But because we see him no longer, the Spirit will come and will lead us into righteousness. And then notice with me the next thing that the Spirit does. He convicts the world of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. We don't have time to totally and completely unpack that, but if we were to follow John's other writings, he would say that the whole world is under the sway of the evil one, which is Satan. The ruler of the world, Satan, is judged. He is defeated. He is judged in Christ. 
And the Spirit reveals that. The Spirit reveals that. If we follow with the text, we'll learn that Jesus does, or the, the Holy Spirit will speak truth. Look at verse 12. We're going to go through this real quick, and then we're going to unpack a lot of the implications for this. So bear with me here. Verse 12, he, he speaks truth. Jesus, in, in this moment, says, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. You see, the Spirit leads us into truth. He leads us into truth. He does not lead us into poor or improper understandings of who God is. He leads us into the truth of who God is. He will guide you with all truth. He will not speak on his own authority. And then notice the, the last thing that he does in verse 14. He will glorify me. He will glorify me. You see, the work of the Spirit is most clearly seen in asking the question, who gets the glory here? Who gets the glory here? If you walk into the room and you're wondering the question, is this the Spirit at work? The question to ask is, is Christ glorified? And if he's not then that's something else at work. Is Christ being glorified and exalted through this work that's happening? But there's a specific way in which, which he is glorified and exalted. We see that word for. He's inviting us to recognize that what comes after he will glorify me directly entails to the way in which he will glorify me. And this is absolutely beautiful. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. What is Jesus's? What belongs to him? The identity of the Son of God. The inheritance of all things. And so when Jesus is saying here... That Jesus, that, that the Spirit will take what is mine and declare it to you. He is saying, I'm going to take the identity of Christ and declare it to the people of God. Not only who Christ is, but who they are in him. Oh man, this is, this is super rich. What is Jesus's? Sonship. Jesus is the Son of God. He is God's Son. Look at John 14, 16 through 18 here. We need Jesus' words to help us to put these pieces together. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. So there's that helper language again. He's going to help us in some way, shape, or form through even the spirit of truth. He's going to speak truth to us, specifically to the people of God. The, the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, yet the people of God know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. If what is Jesus's is sonship and what the role of the Spirit is is to declare what Jesus is, what belongs to Jesus, 
to us, then this phrase, I will not leave you as orphans, has massive implications for us. Massive implications for us. We talked a, a few weeks ago about the Trinity, but uh, let me just do a, a brief overview. Uh, the, the God that we believe in is three in one. Right? He is one God, yet there are three persons in that God. There are a Father, there are a Son, and there are Holy Spirit. They are working together in all things, specifically working towards salvation in our lives, like the reconciliation of the world. So throughout history, throughout history, this is what we see. We see the Father initiating. We see the Son accomplishing and we see the Spirit applying. So the Father initiates the plan of salvation. He develops the plan since before the foundations of the world to save a people for himself. And then he sends Jesus, his Son. And Jesus, his Son, accomplishes that salvation by uniting himself to the people of God. And then the Spirit applies the work of Jesus' salvation to the life of the believer. So here's the gospel. In love, God the Father predestined us for adoption as sons. Women, it's a good thing that you're a son here. It's a good thing because you're getting the identity of Christ. He predestined us to adoption as sons. God the Father plans to adopt us. God the Son unites himself to our cause so that we, through our union with him, become sons of God. So why won't we be left as orphans? Because the Spirit applies that truth to our hearts. What is the work of the Spirit to remind you that you are not an orphan? That you are a child of God? We've used this analogy before, but imagine, if you will, there is a, there is a young, young boy, uh, he's an orphan on the street. He, he is at the street corner every day asking for food and asking for uh, water or asking for money. And, and a wealthy benefactor, a man with billions of dollars, more than we could even comprehend, comes up to him and he says to him, look, son, I, I see that you need a home. I... I have a home for you. Will you come home with me? I want to adopt you. And so he adopts this kid. He puts him into his will. No, this isn't the story of Batman and Robin. So he puts him into his will and he says, everything I have is yours, all of it. You can have all of this. He, he writes into his will that you will inherit all of this. And yet every day, that boy goes out to the street with his sign asking for money and for food and for water. And the father comes out to him and he says, Son, come home. You, you have all of this. You've been adopted. You've been adopted. What the Spirit does is he reminds us that we are no longer orphans. That we are no longer orphans. Let me see if I can make this plain. We're in Texas, so this should land. But the show Friday Night Lights... Maybe. We'll see. Uh, so there's a TV show, Friday Night Lights. It is about high school football in the great state of Texas. And it is, it is talking all about the culture that surrounds that, the way that football becomes a linchpin for the community. But uh, within this show, Friday Night Lights, we're introduced to a character. A character by the name of Tim Riggins. 
Now, Tim Riggins has been abandoned by his parents at an early age in life. They have both taken off. And so he is left to live with his brother Billy, and his brother Billy makes sure that he knows and is, is reminded regularly of what he's had to sacrifice in order to take care of his brother Tim. So Tim knows from a very early age that he has been abandoned and that his brother has had to greatly sacrifice in order for him to have anything. So what happens to Tim's life is he develops a reputation of kind of the town bum. He's the town drunk. He, he is irresponsible. He'll never make anything happen to himself. And if he was not so irresponsible, maybe we'd have a decent football player on our team. So he believes the, the worst about himself. He continues down this path. He can't see that he's got honorable and respectable traits about him that need to be cultivated. Instead, he just continues to self-sabotage. He believes he should be treated poorly. He's always blaming himself for the suffering of those around him. In fact, early on, the very first episode, one of the premises of the show, is that his best friend gets into a football injury and he blames himself for it. He blames himself for his best friend's injury. His life continues down a pathway of two warring identities. Tim Riggins, the, the football player, the teammate with potential, with potential, the honorable qualities and characteristics. And then there's the Tim Riggins who's the orphan. He's abandoned at an early age. He is unworthy of love. He has no potential at all. He is the town drunk. So he continues to sabotage relationships until one day, he ends up in Coach Taylor's home. Now, Coach Taylor is kind of the father figure that Tim Riggins always wishes he had but never did. He begins to feel at home in Coach Taylor's house. He begins to feel like maybe he belongs. He begins to feel like maybe he's understood. Then he begins to do the honorable thing. He begins to show up when he's supposed to show up. He begins to, to actually lead his friends. He begins to become a protector for those around him. You see, these things that have led to sabotage before are now things that he's cultivating into greatness in his life. One night, he sees Coach Taylor's daughter at a party, and she's drinking underage, and he is worried about her. And so she, he makes sure she gets home. And in that midst of that, there's an under, a misunderstanding between Coach Taylor and Tim Riggins. Tim Riggins is kicked out of Coach Taylor's house, and he believes the worst about himself again. He goes home. He turns to drinking, and he turns to theft as a result of what's happened. Why? Because there is something intrinsic in what Tim Riggins believes that he is not wanted, that he does not belong. He believes deep in his soul that it's who he is, unwanted, unloved, undesirable, abandoned. And if we're honest with ourselves, if we're really honest with ourselves, we've all got a little bit of Tim Riggins inside of our soul. We all, we've all got a little bit of that, I don't know that I'm wanted. I, I don't know that I'm loved. I don't know that I'm cared for. I, I, I feel abandoned. And so... We have this belief that we don't belong, that we aren't worthy of love, that we're alone, and this plays itself out in one of two ways. 
one of two ways. It, one is we sabotage. We continue down a pathway of sin and foolishness because we think that's what we deserve or we think that's the only way we can make it out is to make it happen for ourselves, to protect ourselves by pursuing others, to protect ourselves by pursuing things that would make us forget. Or we self-justify, right? So one is self-sabotage, two is self-justify. So we do everything in our power to justify everything we do. And so we put others to sit as judge over our lives, and we need people to see our success, and then we need them to tap the gavel that says successful. Welcome home. You've earned your keep. We need people to sit as judge over our lives to say you're enough. Why? Because we're orphans. There is fractured relationship between us and our true Father. But the gospel is that you have been reconciled to God, reconciled to that relationship through your union with Christ. And here's what the Spirit does. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. He reminds you that you are no longer an orphan. He brings life, order, and beauty into your life by reminding you of your identity. We believe that we're orphans, that we've been abandoned or rejected, and so we either must fight to overcome that belief by proving ourselves to other people or we fall into self-sabotage because we think that's what we deserve. And in comes the Spirit reminding us with the words of Christ, I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you as orphans. You've been brought home. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, brothers and sisters, we have not received the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. We've received the spirit of adoption as sons. The Spirit reminds us that God has made his home with us, that we are home with God. So here's how this works. Maybe you're saying, Austin, how does conviction of sin remind us about our adoption? Well, the conviction of sin works to remind us that that isn't who you are. Come back to the Father's house. Come back to your identity. How does conviction of righteousness remind us of our identity? Let me give an illustration. Last night, I finished dinner. We're eating dinner as a family. And, and Emmerich finishes before us because he just eats a ton and very fast. And so we, um, we pass him over and we wash his hands. And, and I'm, I'm about ready to start cleaning up. And he says, Daddy, will you come play basketball with me? And I said, yeah, buddy, but real quick, I got to clean up some of the kitchen. It's kind of a mess in here. And he begins to, to throw a fit. He begins to, to say, don't clean up. Don't clean up. Come play basketball with me. So I got, I got down at his level and I looked him in the eye and I said, Son, the men in our family serve around the house. We clean up after dinner. What am I doing? 
I'm teaching him about righteousness, about what it means to live in this way. The Spirit does that. The Spirit teaches us about what it means to be a part of the family of God. What I was doing in that moment with my son is teaching him about what it meant to be a son in this household. That we serve our home. The Spirit does that for us. It teaches us about what it means to be a part of the family of God. It, it points us towards righteousness. It, it points us towards the way in which we are to walk. He points us in the way in which we are to walk. And then he brings conviction of judgment. He reminds us, brothers and sisters, he reminds us that Satan has been defeated. That, that he will be judged, that the blood of the Lamb silences the accuser. He reminds us to not listen to the voice that says you will never be victorious over things in your life, over your besetting sins. He reminds us that you have hope, that all of that is a lie, that this is not the end for you. Satan stands condemned and he stands judged and he has nothing before the Father. And the Spirit speaks that into our hearts. He reminds us that that voice that says you'll never be good enough, you'll never be enough for everybody else, you're an orphan. The Spirit says no, that voice is a lie and he is judged. He is condemned. The Spirit does this through the Word, always pointing us to Jesus, always pointing us to truth. He reminds us personally of truth that we need to hold on to, but He also does so through the body of Christ. Hang with me here. I know it's hot. It's 105 degrees outside. It's not the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Maybe it is. One of the things that matters a lot to us as a church is that we believe that the Spirit is still active in the body of Christ today. It matters a lot to us. And here's why it matters, brothers and sisters. Here's why it matters. Because if the Spirit exalts Christ, if the Spirit helps us to remember our God-given identity, then sometimes we need people outside of ourselves to speak those truths to us too. You see, we believe that the, the Spirit points to the work of Christ, that He is still active in the church today doing that very thing, and that gifts are given to the church, given through the Holy Spirit by the will of God for the common good. Each member in the church is distinct in design, yet united in mission to strengthen the body of Christ for the glory of God and the benefit of others. And so when we talk about spiritual gifts, that the Spirit is still active in the church today, what is the Spirit doing in the church? He is using the body of Christ to teach other believers and those who aren't yet believers about their adopted identity. Let me explain. The Spirit reminds us of our identity. He reminds us that we aren't orphans, that we've been adopted, that we've been invited into the Father's house. The Spirit also gives us gifts not to terminate in on ourselves, but for the sake of the body of Christ, for our adopted brothers and sisters. 
So what's, what's the purpose of the spiritual gifts that are given? We don't have time to talk about all of them, but what's the purpose of them? The purpose of them is for the benefit of believers, the benefit of others. So, so if we were to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14, where Paul talks about spiritual gifts, the, the biggest argument he's going to make is that the purpose of the spiritual gifts is for the other brothers and sisters in your church. It's not for you. <laughs> it's for others. So what kind of gifts should we pray for? Paul lays out his argument, and, and essentially what he's asking is, what do your brothers and sisters in Christ need? That's the gifting you should pray for. Prophecy is, is more desirable than tongues because it's what others need. If, if I speak a tongue and nobody understands, then what does that matter? But if I have a word for my brother or sister, that is a good thing. That is a good thing, a joyous thing. That's why in Romans 12, Paul ties us his commentary with spiritual gifts to this specific phrase. He unloads about spiritual gifts, and then he says this, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. The gifts of the Spirit, the way that you have been uniquely wired and gifted by God is for the purpose of the body of Christ so that Christ might be exalted, so that our identity would be declared to us, and so that we might declare that identity to others. The Spirit makes known what belongs to Christ to us. It's why right in the middle of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, about the conversation around spiritual gifts is a chapter about how love and love for one another shows itself off in amidst the body of Christ as evidence that the familial bond of the Spirit has been rooted and grounded in our hearts. The Spirit reminds us of our identity and the Spirit gives us gifts to remind others of their identity. Spirit makes known what belongs to Christ to us, makes known our identity. The Spirit, through the body of Christ, teaches us how to lean into our identity as sons of God. And so there will be seasons in your life where you will need encouragement of a reminder and you come to the body of Christ and they're able to encourage you with the truth that you have indeed been adopted that you are a part of the family. There will be seasons where you need rebuke and you will come to the body of Christ and they'll be given words or, or ways to speak into your life to remind you that that is no longer your identity. Come back into the house. There will be seasons where you're given an understanding of what's going on in the church at a deeper level, not so that you can flaunt your gifting, but so that you can bring it before the church and say, let us help to lead this church into righteousness. Let us help to lead this church into truth. Let us help to lead those around us into what God is doing. There will be seasons in your life where you wonder, if the suffering that you are going through is all you will ever face, you will wonder if one day Christ returns and you're just going to be in pain all the time even then. And God gives gifts of healing to the body of Christ to remind you that in the Father's house, 
when all of this is fully and finally reconciled and redeemed, that will be no more. You see, the Spirit is given to the church so that we would know who we are and so that we would help our brothers and sisters in Christ to know who they are. That we have been adopted. That we have been brought near. That he hears us. That he will not leave us alone. That he will help us. That he will guide us. That he will convict us of sin and convict us of righteousness and bring us into truth. Brothers and sisters, let me exhort you this morning. Sunday mornings is a really hard place to see these things take place in your life. You need to be deeply connected with other believers in Christ because your identity will not be reminded to you on your own. The Spirit will come to you and you will need other voices to affirm that yes, indeed, that's the Spirit. Do not let Sunday mornings be the only time that you connect with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Do not believe that this on Sunday morning is going to be enough for you. Get connected with other believers who can walk out the truths of the Spirit into your life. Why? Why does that matter? Because you need people who can remind you of your identity. You need people who know you at a deep enough level to say when you're outside of the house. You need people who can come to your level and say, brother, sister, this is what it looks like to be in the house of God. And it is far too easy on Sunday mornings to come here and look like you've got it all together. All the while, behind the scenes, you're running around like an orphan, self-sabotaging and self-justifying. You need brothers and sisters. You need brothers and sisters. So here's what I want to do this morning. We're, we're long, and that's okay. You're already, you've already sweat through your clothes, so we're fine. Here's what I want to do this morning. Um... I'm just increasingly convicted by the fact that if 60% of Christians don't actually believe in the Holy Spirit, it does not shock me that where we're at, we're at where we're at in this world today. Like, we just don't, we're not even taking advantage of the power that's available to us. And so here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to sit in awkward silence. We're going to sit in awkward silence and we are going to pray that the Spirit would reveal himself to us. And then we're going to pray that the Spirit would reveal to us what our brothers and sisters need to know. And then my invitation to you is to practice. So we're going to pray. We're going to spend some time in awkward silence praying those things. And then as we close the last song and as we exit here, my invitation to all of you is if the Lord is speaking something to you for a brother or sister in Christ, 
Go find them and speak to them. You may be way off. It may have been bad pizza from the night before. But we're going to begin to walk in obedience together because this is a piece of what we are missing so deeply in the church. If the Spirit is here to remind us of our identity and to remind our brothers and sisters of our identity, why are we not walking in that? He desires to bring life, order, and beauty by restoring our identity. And he desires to bring life, order, and beauty by using brothers and sisters in the church to restore our identity. So let's stop pretending we're orphans. And let's start remembering what God says is true about us.